Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Welcome to this IPR lecture. I'm Nick Pierce. I'm the uh, director of the Institute. Uh, and this evening, um, we're very pleased to welcome Professor Roger Farmer. Uh, professor Farmer um, is um, a distinguished professor of economics at UCLA. Uh, he's also currently a research director, just started the research, research director at NISA, um, leading economic research institute, as you know, in London. Um, and he's here this evening and, and made it here through the sort of floods and inclement weather of um, uh, the journey from London down to Bath uh, to talk to us about uh, the ideas contained in his new book, Prosperity for All, How to Prevent um, Financial Crises. And these remain you know, very big and live and important issues in uh, economic policymaking, despite the fact that the uh, financial crisis to many feels as if it's sort of receding many of its legacies are still with us, and many of the economic debates about why the crisis happened and how to prevent such crises in the future remain very important issues, both for, you know, not just for academic uh, economists, but also for politicians and policymakers. These are incredibly important questions. And tomorrow we have an autumn statement, uh, the first of the new, um, if you can call it that, the new Theresa May government. And many of these issues, of course, have implications for how we think about fiscal policy uh, <coughs> as well as monetary policy and how the Bank of England and others uh, do what they do. So um, it's great to have you here, Professor Farmer. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. And there'll be an opportunity, of course, to pose some questions and have a debate at the end of the talk. But welcome, Professor Farmer. All right, fantastic. So thank you so much for that introduction, Nick. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here through floods and storms. Um, so I, I'm going to talk about the book, and I'm going to talk about some ideas that are, I think, um, relatively new in the book. I'm going to talk about uh, how those ideas are connected with the past, uh, but also about what they suggest for what we should be doing in the future. And I'd like to start with the past. So um, the idea that a government should be intervening in the economy in order to maintain uh, a high level of employment is a relatively new idea. Um, before the publication uh, of a book by... John Maynard Keynes in 1936, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, uh, that idea was absent from political discourse. Uh, I, I would say that uh, and everybody who's looked at the general theory has their own idea of what it says. Uh, I, I'm like to, I'd like to distill what I think are three important ideas in the general theory. Uh, and I'm going to talk about uh, how they were forgotten how they need to be resuscitated, uh, and how I'm going to reinterpret those ideas in, in, a, in a new way. So the first of those ideas is um, what's sometimes called uh, animal spirits. So uh, what Keynes meant by that uh, is that uh, business confidence, consumer confidence, uh, psychology, if you like, is an important independent driver uh, of recessions, business cycles, and in particular, a major cause of, of the Great Depression. The second idea that was new and important in Keynes's general theory was the idea of involuntary unemployment. Uh, and he had a definition of that in terms of microeconomics. And in particular, looking at the, the immense misery that was generated uh, in, the, uh, in the world uh, after the stock market crash in, the, in America in 1929, uh, it was very difficult to think about uh, capitalist economies smoothly functioning 
uh, and, and generating um, the best of all possible worlds for everyone. So he coined the idea that there's something wrong or broken in the labor market. He talked about involuntary unemployment, but he never really reconciled that idea with microeconomic theory. And I'm going to come back to that point because it was one of the consequences. As a consequence of that, um, we gave up on Keynesian economics in the 1970s and the 1980s. And the third important idea was that government has a responsibility to do something about it. And in particular, he argued that the way that government could do something about uh, the unemployment problem was through counter-cyclical fiscal policy. So governments should be spending uh, at a time when there was high unemployment. And that was a very radical idea because at the time, uh, and, uh, and again now, the, the predominant view of the public purse was that if you're in a crisis, you need to tighten your belt. So austerity is not a new concept. It was the predominant concept uh, of, of what was called the treasury view uh, in the 1920s. Um, uh, and Keynes said no. You know, when, when times are tough, the government has a responsibility to borrow even more uh, and spend. So I'm going to talk about all three of those ideas. Uh, I'm going to try and resuscitate the first two. Uh, and the third one, I'm going to give uh, an alternative uh, to. So the ideas uh, that mirror those that come out of the book uh, Prosperity for All, uh, I'm going to talk again about animal spirits, but uh, being schooled in, in, uh, in microeconomics and in, in, in the theory of, of markets, uh, I'm going to try and explain why uh, animal spirits happen and how it can be that uh, rational people, and I'm going to argue that people are rational in the sense that economists have meant that a long time. I'm going to argue how rational people who are trying to make money in markets can somehow miss the fact that markets can go very, very wrong. And I'll be talking about the difference between uh, two different ideas of efficiency, uh, and I'll get to those later in the talk. In particular, I'm going to argue that the financial markets are inefficient in a particular way, and I'm going to explain why. Secondly, I'm going to get to this idea of involuntary unemployment. Uh, and um, I, I'm going to tell you something which may shock you, but for the last 30 years, 35 years or more, uh, I've been to macroeconomic seminars all over the world, uh, and nowhere in those seminars has anyone talked about involuntary unemployment. So the notion of involuntary unemployment was banished from macroeconomics in the 1970s, uh, and it was replaced with the idea that everybody in the labor market is voluntarily interacting. So essentially, when people, when people become unemployed, they're simply taking a vacation. Um, that clearly is silly, uh, and uh, I'm going to tell you how to reconcile Keynesian ideas with microeconomics in a way that reintroduces the idea that unemployment is a very bad thing, uh, and it's, in some sense, involuntary. Uh, and finally, um, in when I put these two pieces together, uh, when I started working on these ideas about 10 years ago, I thought that what I would be doing was 
really just uh, making the case for Keynesian economics, and I would be coming in on my white horse, and, and Paul Krugman would be saying, yes, yes, farmers got it right. You know, he's our champion for fiscal policy. Um, but then I realized after I started putting these things together that maybe that wasn't quite right. So I'm going to disagree with that third piece of Keynesian economics, and I'm going to argue that the answer to these questions is not uh, uh, large expansionary fiscal policies, although I don't have anything necessarily against them. I'm going to argue that the problem is in the financial markets, and so is the solution. And I'll talk about what I mean by that later in the talk. So um, in the book, I, I talk about two different visions uh, of macroeconomics. Uh, and the first uh, is the idea that economies are self-correcting. And econ economists often begin, uh, we, you know, we, the history of our, of our subject begins in 1776 with Adam Smith, who wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations. And he introduced the idea of the invisible hand. Uh, and that notion was that, uh, I, I'd say it's it kind of uh, 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 appears again in, in uh, the movie Wall Street, in which famously Gordon Gecko says, greed is good. Right? And that, you know, that notion that individuals trying to do as well for themselves as they possibly can results in the best of all possible worlds socially, um, that's what I'm going to call classical ideas or classical economics. And it's, it's encompassed, or it's the, the metaphor for that is an idea that was introduced by a Swedish economist, Nutvik Sell. And he said the economy is like a rocking horse. And it's like a rocking horse which is pummeled by a kid with a stick. And every time, if, if the kid was to hit the stick onto the rocking horse just once, the rocking horse would rock back and forth, and it would come to rest uh, at, at a point. But if the kid kept hitting the rocking horse randomly, bang, 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 the, the rocking horse would follow a pattern that was neither determined by the internal physics of the rocker nor by the random history of shocks, but by some combination of the two. Importantly, in the rocking horse metaphor, the rocking horse always comes back to the same point. And that idea is, uh, I'm going to call that the notion of a self-stabilizing system. And uh, not only classical economics, but uh, another branch which is sometimes called New Keynesian economics and has dominated the subject for the last 35 years, uh, both classical and New Keynesian ideas encompass that notion that the economy is like a rocking horse. It's a self-stabilizing system. So if the government didn't do anything, eventually we'd come back to full employment. It might take a little bit longer, but we'd get there. And we're never too far away from it. The other notion, um, which I, I actually introduced first uh, in a book I wrote five years ago, uh, How the Economy Works, it's an alternative metaphor. And in that metaphor, I want you to think of the economy as like a sailboat on the ocean with a broken rudder. And instead of a kid banging the rocking horse with a stick, think of the wind blowing the boat. And the shocks that hit the economy are things like a hurricane or an airline pilot strike uh, or uh, a new trade deal, a new invention. And those shocks that buffet the economy in the windy boat vision can move the boat from one place to another 
but there's no force which is returning it to a safe harbor. So you could end up with 5% unemployment in the absence of wind, or you could end up with 25% unemployment. That idea was in the general theory and has been submerged or forgotten for the last, uh, well, almost half a, half a century. Um, so the, the, the two themes that I, I talked about initially were uh, the theme that um, the financial markets are uh, volatile and inefficient, uh, and the theme that that has something to do with the unemployment rate. And I'm showing you some evidence of that on this picture. Uh, so the, the blue line is uh, the value of the stock market measured in, in real units, so measured uh, relative to something real, in particular measure, measured relative to wages. Uh, and the red line with dots uh, on an inverted scale, so it's going here from 0 to 30, uh, is the unemployment rate. And the data you're looking at is from 1928 up through uh, the beginning of World War II. Actually, it goes beyond that to, to 1945. Uh, and the, the gray shaded areas are uh, recessions. And recessions, so this is United States data, and recessions are dated by a committee called the NBER Dating Committee. Uh, and notice that the Great Depression was actually two recessions, one which began in 1929 and ended in 33, and then another one in 1937. So the economy began to recover. Unemployment started to fall. Uh, then there was another recession in 1937. But the economy really didn't completely recover um, until the beginning of World War II. Um, what I want you to take away from that picture is firstly that those two uh, things move very closely together. And secondly, that the drop in the stock market preceded the increase uh, in the unemployment rate. Uh, and you might think, well, that was just the Great Depression. Nothing like that has happened ever since, and you'd be wrong. So this is data from the Great Recession. These are the same two uh, time series, the same two pieces of data, uh, running from 2000 up here through 2014. And once again, I want you to notice that the drop in the stock market precedes the increase in the unemployment rate. Now, there are two reasons that you might give for that connection. Um, and I, I have stories for them. So, if you look carefully over the whole period from 19, uh, in the po whole post-war period, and not just the, the Depression, uh, you find that there's a, a technical concept called Granger causality. Uh, and what that means is that there's information in the stock market that helps you predict what's going to happen to the unemployment rate. Now, there's two reasons that might be. So the first is uh, that the stock market and unemployment might be like a weather forecast. So you go home tonight, you turn on the news, and the weather forecaster says, sorry, it's going to rain even more tomorrow. So 
sensibly, you take out your umbrella next morning uh, and you're cautious uh, in where you drive, particularly in the current situation. Now, you say, well, I could just go down to the BBC and tell them, no, 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 don't say that. Say it's going to be sunny. Uh, uh, you tell the weather forecaster to say it's going to be sunny. That's not going to change things. Nevertheless, you would find that if you looked at weather forecasts and you looked at weather, that the weather forecast would grange a cause. It would help predict what's going to happen to the weather. That's the traditional view that most people would give or most economists would give for the pictures that I've just showed you. That the stock market is like the weather forecast. It contains information on what's going to happen, but somehow changing it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference. I don't think that's the way the world is. So there's a second view of the stock market, which I call the forest fire view. So I've been living in California for 30 years, and we have to worry there about forest fires. So imagine that, um, that you notice that every time somebody goes into a forest after a long dry period and they drop a cigarette butt on the forest floor, that it starts a forest fire. Now, that's an example where if you were to ban people from smoking in forests, you probably would prevent forest fires. And my view is that the, the, the causation that you're seeing in the pictures I'm showing you is that second view. And much of the work I've done for the last 20 years or more is explaining why that might be the case. There's another analogy that I like to think about, which also came from Keynes, about the stock market. He said the stock market is like a beauty contest. But it's not like a beauty contest where the judges are judging how beautiful the contestants are. It's a beauty contest where the judges are judging how beautiful they think the other judges think the contestants are. And he said some people are playing that to the second and third degree. So in other words, some people are playing the stock market. They're judging not only how beautiful they think the other judges think the contestants are. They're trying to guess how beautiful the other judges think the other judges think the other judges think the contestants are. And the analogy there is clear. People who are buying and selling in the asset markets are not concerned about the long-term health of the, of the companies they're buying and selling. They're simply concerned about whether they can offload the stocks at a profit uh, at some point uh, in the future. Um, these two uh, people here are responsible for uh, much of the modern view uh, of uh, economics. Now, sometimes when I give these talks, people ask me, well, is economics a science? My answer to that question is, well, yes, economics is a science, but it's not an experimental science. Uh, and as a consequence, it can go very wrong for long periods of time. We can go off on the wrong track. It's a little bit like a tree in which there are many branches, and only one of them is the right one. And sometimes we have to go a long way along the wrong branch before we come back again. Uh, and in my view, economics took the wrong branch in 1955. Now, um, that happens to be the year I was born, but that's not the reason that it went, went the wrong way. In 1955, this man, Paul Samuelson, uh, wrote uh, in the third edition of his textbook, uh, he coined a new idea 
that he called the neoclassical synthesis. And what Samuelson was trying to do was reconcile uh, Keynes's ideas in the general theory with classical ideas uh, of economics. Uh, and what Keynes claimed, uh, what uh, Samuelson claimed in his textbook was that the economy is Keynesian in what he called the short run, but it's classical in the long run. And he, he said the difference between the short run and the long run uh, had to do with what he called sticky prices. So there was some barrier that prevented prices from adjusting. And because prices were not adjusting quickly, the demand and the supply of all goods, and in particular the demand and the supply of labor, were not equal. And so there could be an excess supply of labor. Too many people would be looking for jobs. But if left to itself, the economy would quickly converge uh, back to um, what these days we would call the natural rate of unemployment. What I mean by that is uh, when you start really thinking about labor markets, you realize that you wouldn't ever really want to have zero unemployment. And the reason you would never want to have zero unemployment is because people are changing jobs all the time. So imagine that you're getting married and you need to move across the country, or you simply want to go to college or university, um, or you get divorced and you need to move. So there's always people moving and changing jobs. And as a consequence of that, there'll always be some unemployment but you don't want either too much unemployment or too little unemployment. So, like, um, so one way of thinking about what economists call the natural rate of unemployment, it's the Goldilocks level of unemployment, neither too hot nor too cold. Um, so Samuelson has this view that it's just sticky prices. And um, if you just leave economies, they'll get back to this natural rate. And he was really uh, just adding to the ideas of John Hicks, uh, who was a, a British economist who helped to really try to translate the, the Keynes of the general theory into simple equations. And I have a lovely quote at the bottom. Joan Robinson, who was a, a contemporary of Keynes, referred to this idea as bastard Keynesianism. Uh, but bastard Keynesianism is the Keynesianism that we've had, uh, and it's the Keynesianism that that now permeates our central banks uh, and treasuries throughout the world. Um, Samuelson was wrong. Uh, in my view, um, recessions are not caused by sticky prices. Uh, the idea of, of calling New Keynesian economics New Keynesian economics was a, a master stroke uh, in the sense that it enabled Samuelson to claim the mantle of the general theory. But the ideas that he was promulgating are neither new, nor are they Keynesian. So they're not Keynesian because the Keynes of the general theory is the Keynes of the windy boat model, whereas the Keynes that Samuelson embraced was a rocking horse model. Uh, and nor are they new, in fact, they're really, uh, if, if you want to, to, to see the nicest description uh, of, um, uh, of New Keynesian economics, you should look at David Hume's work in 1749, where he has a lovely essay called Of Money, which describes exactly the kind of dynamics that uh, economies uh, follow that are encapsulated in modern 
uh, New Keynesian views. Um, and again, this brings me back to a point I made slightly earlier. In, in, these, in these descriptions of the world that central bankers and, uh, and treasury officials and, and practicing economists and academic economists have been using, there is no unemployment. And uh, a, so you know, what happens is prices may be slightly wrong, but nevertheless, anybody who wants a job can find a job at the relevant wage in the models that people have been using. Famously, uh, an economist at, at, at MIT, Franco Medigliani, uh, resisted that idea. He said that he didn't think the Great Depression was a sudden attack of contagious laziness. Uh, and nevertheless, you know, that idea is what's been promulg- it's what, it's what underlies uh, the models that I've been critical of. All right. So now I'm going to go in and I'm going to talk about two ideas. And again, being trained in, in classical economics, I'm very resistant to the idea of um, telling you that government should be in your lives. I, I, I'm, uh, I, I was brought up as a, as a good liberal in, in, the, in the English sense of the word. And uh, I, I think that we all have personal responsibilities to make our own minds up. And uh, I, I very much hesitate telling governments that they should be in there doing anything. So when I tell you that I think governments should be in there doing something, I, I feel that I, I have to tell you why. So I have to explain to you what's going wrong with the world as it's seen through classical economics. Now, um, classical economics, as it's taught to graduate students throughout the world, uh, is encapsulated in in what are called the welfare theorems of economics. And what the welfare theorems tell you is that under some circumstances, if societies of freely interacting people are, are able to buy and sell things without intervention, that the outcome is, um, in, in a fairly narrow sense, but a sense nevertheless, optimal. And that notion of optimality uh, is called uh, Pareto optimality. And what it means is, is the following. It means that there's really no way that we could, re- re- that we could divide up the, the goods in society without making... Uh, there's no way we could divide up all of the goods that we have in society uh, and improve the welfare of somebody without making someone else worse off. Now, the sense in w- that's a very weak concept, and here's the sense in which it's very weak. Imagine I'm the dictator, and I own everything, and you guys are all starving. Well, um, that's Pareto optimal. It's Pareto optimal because as, self- as a selfish dictator... You know, I have no desire for you guys to live or, you know, the starving children to be given anything. And that's an assumption. That's one of the assumptions that underlies classical economics. So don't come... I'm not telling you that's my view of humanity. It's not. Uh, But, you know, that's uh, that's one allocation that would be Pareto optimal. Now, here's another one. Suppose that we divided up all the goods in, in the world, and you all had equal shares in some way, well, that could be Pareto optimal. Here's where it wouldn't be Pareto optimal. So supposing one of you is a teetotaler, 
uh, and, and gets a case of Chardonnay, uh, and someone else is a vegetarian and gets a, a side of beef, well, that's clearly not an optimal allocation because the, the, the teetotaler doesn't want the case of Chardonnay and the vegetarian doesn't want the beef. So what, what Pareto optimality says is that kind of thing won't happen in markets. Uh, and it's a really quite a weak efficiency concept. Now, Keynes looks at what happened in, in the Great Depression in the 1930s where unemployment went up to 25% in the United States and if he were alive today, he would be looking at Greece, where youth unemployment went up to 50%. And he would say, well, that's kind of hard to think about that as, as, as Pareto optimal. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is that the allocations you see in financial markets are not Pareto optimal. And I'm going to have to tell you why that's the case. And I, I'll get there in a second. The second thing I'm going to tell you is that labor markets don't work well. And I have to, you know, one of the reasons that people gave up on Keynesian economics in the 1970s and the 1980s um, was as a consequence of something that we call the great stagflation. So those of you who lived through it, uh, in, in the 1970s, we had very high inflation and high unemployment at the same time. And the interpretations of Keynes that Samuelson had given didn't allow for that to happen. And one of the reasons is that there, although Keynes was a wonderful economist and a, a very intelligent man, he wrote the general theory quickly in an attempt to persuade politicians to do something that he, he thought would improve the situation. And as a consequence, uh, it's a terrible book to read you know, there are lots of pieces where people disagree about what he's actually saying. And uh, he never really filled in the piece about what was going wrong in labor markets. And when you fill that piece in, and that's one of the things I've done in this book, uh, you end up with an explanation of why labor markets are not working well. And I'll say a little bit about that. So here's uh, my first piece of evidence about the financial markets. And what you're looking at here are data from uh, 1890 through 2014. Uh, and um, again, the gray bars are recessions in the United States. So this is again US data. And uh, you're, what you're looking at is what's called the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. What that is, it's the ratio of the stock market to the value of, of the, the stream of earnings that the stocks generate. Now, I have no beef with the, the idea that the stock market should be volatile. Uh, just think about why. So if you think about the railroad boom in the 1890s, if you think about electrification in the 1920s, if you think about the internet in the last couple of decades, they're all huge, tremendous innovations that ought to lead to tremendous growth, and they did, and therefore to huge value in, in uh, uh, the ideas and the machines and the capital of the people who, who, who introduced those, uh, those innovations. But although it's true that they should have led to huge increases in the prices of railroads or the prices of electric companies or Apple computers, they should not have led to huge changes in the ratio 
of the value of the company to the earnings that they would be receiving. Because the reason that uh, Apple Computer has value, the reason that railroad stocks had value in the 1890s, and the value that utility companies had in the 1920s was precisely because they were expected to generate big streams of profits. And if you look at simple economic models, they tell you that the thing that you're looking at here should be a flat line. You know, that is, we should see volatility in stocks, but only to the extent that it's generated by volatility in earnings. And when you put the ratio of one to the other, you should get something that doesn't move much. What we actually saw was that in 1920, the price-earnings ratio was low as five, uh, and in the late 1990s, it was as high as 45. And those are tremendously difficult things to explain using standard uh, economics. So why did that happen? Well, um, it's important to distinguish uh, two ideas uh, in, in financial economics. Uh, some of you will have heard of something called the efficient markets hypothesis. This is an idea that was introduced in Chicago. And the efficient markets hypothesis says uh, that it's difficult or impossible to make money by buying and selling stocks in the financial markets unless you have inside information. Um, Gene Farmer, F-A-M-A, -A, who introduced that idea uh, in, uh, in Chicago, uh, was a, a stroke of sheer genius to use the word efficiency. Because what he means by the efficient markets hypothesis has nothing to do with the efficiency concept that I just talked about and which most economists mean when they talk about efficiency. What Gene Farmer meant is what he called informational efficiency. Uh, and informational efficiency is simply defined as the inability to make money when you trade in financial markets. That, I think, is a, probably a pretty good description of the way the world is. If that was not a good description, I would be out buying and selling stocks right now using my knowledge as an economist as we all know, the knowledge of economists is not worth much. The other idea of efficiency is Pareto efficiency. And Pareto efficiency, when applied to the financial markets, says that there's no way that government could be in there doing anything that would improve the lives of some people without making other people worse off. And I called this book Prosperity for All because I think that idea is wrong. I think there is something that the government can do in financial markets, and I think I know what it is and why it's there. Uh, and the answer is uh, the Grim Reaper. Uh, so um, when markets go up uh, and markets go down, that influences not only you and I, it influences our children, and it influences our grandchildren. So the typical duration of the effects of a financial crisis like the one we've just been through can be 20 years or more. Now, imagine that there was some big market at the beginning of time where everybody who would ever be born could all get together and trade with each other. So 
for those of you who, who've studied philosophy, this is a bit like John Rawls's idea of the veil of ignorance. He talks about people doing this. Um, that idea of people trading in financial markets before they're born uh, may seem far-fetched, but it's the idea that underlies the concept of uh, that markets are, are financially and Pareto efficient that underlies this, this Chicago doctrine. So in order to believe that financial markets are doing everything that, uh, that markets are supposed to do, you have to believe that everybody could be trading in them. And implicitly, when Chicago economists say you shouldn't be intervening in the, in the financial markets, just let people do what they do because then we'll all be better off, they're implicitly assuming that everybody who will ever be born can be trading in these markets. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because if your first job occurs in the middle of a deep recession, you'll find that you could earn somewhere from 15 to 20% less in real terms over your lifetime than if you're born into a period or if your first job occurs in a boom. So there are big effects of recessions on people's lives. Now imagine that you really could, for yourself, say to yourself, well, um, I'm going to let you go back and trade assets before you're born. In one state of the world, you could be born into the Great Depression. In the other, you might be born into the 1960s. What would you like to do about that? And most of us would say to ourselves, or I, I, I believe, we'd say, well, I'd like to sell an asset that pays off in, in, the, in, the, in the good state, and I'd like to insure myself if I'm born into the Depression so that I don't live a life of misery. Now, those markets don't exist, uh, uh, but it's the assumption that they do exist that leads classical economics to predict that this uh, picture should be a flat line instead of the volatile series I'm showing you. So um, the idea that there are no prenatal asset markets is the first uh, argument I make in the book for why governments should be intervening in markets. And the reason is because they can buy and sell the assets that our children and our grandchildren are unable to do, uh, and they can stabilize the volatility in financial markets that, in my view, is coming simply from uh, the animal spirits or, or the exuberance uh, of uh, investors. Uh, here's the second idea. You might say, well, that's enough on its own. You've explained to me why financial markets are volatile. You've explained why it's a bad thing. Why do I need to say anything about labor markets? Well, the answer to that is that uh, if labor markets work the way that economists now say they do, which is that there's no involuntary unemployment, those big swings in the asset markets that we see would simply lead to redistribution of resources between the owners of labor and the owners of capital. So in some periods, wages would be high. In other periods, uh, profits would be high. And we see uh, employment, you know, you'd be able to get a job uh, it's simply that it, it wouldn't be worth as much. Now, what we actually see are big swings in, in unemployment. 
And the reason for that is that the unemployment, the labor market, is not like a fish market. Uh, you don't go down there and buy and sell fish, and at the end of the day, the price comes down, so all the fish is gone. The labor market is what economists call a search market. So imagine that uh, a brain surgeon uh, likes the Rolling Stones. Uh, and the brain surgeon uh, wants to go see the Rolling Stones in concert, but to do that, she needs to go down and stand in, in a queue for uh, five hours to get a ticket. So instead, the, the brain surgeon takes her teenage son and, and pays him to go and stand in the queue uh, and, and buy the ticket. Now, that would be an efficient allocation of resources. The brain surgeon can concentrate on what she does best, saving lives. The teenage son makes a little extra money by standing in the queue, and everything works well. Well, that's also not how labor markets work because uh, there are no markets to pay someone for you to go and, and, uh, 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 and, and take job interviews for you. So in particular, this process of matching people with jobs has two inputs. It has the people searching for jobs, the unemployed people, and it has the recruiters on the side of firms who are looking to hire people. And there are no prices for those two separate inputs and as a consequence for there not being enough prices, they're what economists would say are missing markets. And what I've shown in my work, and I talk about in the book, is that that can lead to situations where you could have very high unemployment or very low unemployment. And they're both situations that could persist potentially forever as what we would call equilibrium situations. Um, Where's my evidence, you may say, for this? So I talked about the rocking horse model, and I talked about the windy boat model. And what I'm showing you in this picture is how a New Keynesian model, or a classical model, or a, a rocking horse model would respond to a shock. So imagine that what I'm plotting here is GDP per person, and it's growing at 3%, or some rate, 2%. And then there's a shock. You know, maybe uh, maybe uh, there's a presidential election and an unusual outcome. Right? So uh, as a consequence, the economy tanks. But then after a while, it comes back up to the growth path. Actually, you should think of this as, as, as the collapse of Lehman Brothers in, in 2008. And this is what the New Keynesian model would predict should happen following the collapse of, uh, of uh, uh, Lehman Brothers. This is the alternative prediction of a windy boat model. Right? So the windy boat model says in response to the crash of Lehman Brothers, the economy uh, will, take, uh, uh, will, will fall, but instead of returning to the original growth path, you could end up with a path where a GDP per person is forever lower than it might have been. And this gap is represented by people who are either out of the labor market or unemployed. They'd love to have a job, but the economy doesn't get you back to the natural rate uh, of unemployment. So you look at those two pictures and you say, well, you know, why am I so confident that the windy boat model is the right one as opposed to the, uh, the rocking horse model? Uh, and here's the answer to that. This is pictures, a picture from actual data. 
So here you're looking at the log of real GDP per person. This is the Great Recession, and this is what happened. Right, so uh, it's because I think that looks a lot more like the second picture than the first. That So in America, there's a saying, if it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck. Uh, so... Um, that's what we call scientific evidence in economics. Um, so in the last slide or two, uh, before I open it up to questions, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, what I think a recommendation would be for how we should move forward. So uh, if you accept this idea that these swings in asset markets are Pareto inefficient, uh, and you accept that uh, government has the ability to trade on behalf of our children and our grandchildren, how should they do that? Well, uh, I would like to see uh, uh, something like uh, a, uh, an institution, something like a central bank, and I think a, a good institution in the UK to do this would be the newly constituted Financial Policy Committee. And I have a proposal for what the Financial Policy Committee should be doing. They should be stabilizing the stock market. And in particular, uh, rather than buy and sell individual stocks, what I've proposed is that uh, the, the Treasury or the government or politicians should first of all define the object that should be stabilized. And what I've recommended is something called an exchange-traded fund uh, defined over the entire stock market and value-weighted, uh, preferably with non-voting shares. So uh, any company that, that's traded on the stock market would be a part of this indexed fund. Uh, and uh, the, the Treasury Committee or the institution that was running or trading this fund would say... Uh, next month they would meet, perhaps in tandem with the Monetary Policy Committee. And whereas the Monetary Policy Committee would be charged with maintaining a low and stable inflation rate, the Financial Policy Committee would be charged with maintaining uh, a, a, an optimal unemployment rate. What, what's that, you say? Well, that would be something that would, uh, would be a decision made by the members of the committee. Uh, and if they deemed that unemployment was uh, currently too high, they would say, well, uh, this ETF, exchange-traded fund, which is currently trading at 100, as of next Thursday, will be trading at 120, for example. Uh, and it will be growing, its price value will be growing over the next three months at a rate of 2%, for example. They would then actively trade the ETF uh, in exchange for uh, uh, gilts, uh, and they would do this in order to maintain that price. Now, you, as a, an investor, you know, those of you who work for Goldman Sachs, I see lots of you in the audience here today, uh, you, you would uh, then say, well, this object, the, 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 the government will be offering 120 for this next Thursday, so you would go out and you would buy up the shares that are part of this index uh, and uh, in order to make a profit. So long before Thursday comes around, 
the, the ETF will be trading at, at 120, possibly without any active intervention on the part of the committee. If this has a downside in the sense that it's possible for the stock market not just to be undervalued, but also to be overvalued. Uh, and if the committee judges that the unemployment rate is currently too low, that the economy is overheating in some sense, they will then lower the price of the ETF, and they say we will be prepared to short sell these shares or uh, offload them in order to bring the value of the stock market down. And if this were to be a, a successful policy, I would imagine that the average return to owning equities over the whole market, which is currently about 6% higher than the return to holding gilts, would fall. And the return, the real return to holding gilts, would rise uh, until the two met somewhere in the middle at roughly the growth rate of the economy. Uh, and, and once that had been achieved, you know, buying uh, the entire market would be no riskier than simply buying government bonds. However, if you wanted risk, you'd simply go out and buy Apple computers or British Telecom or whatever you'd like to trade, uh, in order to move the resources from one industry to another. So um, that pretty much is uh, where I'm going to leave it for questions. And uh, I would think very seriously about uh, that idea. Thank you.